Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house cinema or world cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, really, I am a writer. I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry, and in the last few years, since around 2011, I have developed a really intense, life-consuming passion for cinema, especially art house and world cinema. Cinema that is often outside of the English-speaking world and outside of the West, for the most part, somewhat. Um, I created this podcast as an outlet to share everything that I feel and think about the films that I watch. I live in a very rural area in the South, and there's not a cinephile culture where I live. There's not even an art house theater near where I live. So um, I'm really sort of alone and isolated in my passion for cinema. So that's why I created Her Head in Films. The title comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago, In that email, I said that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. It's the perfect way to convey how I'm always grappling with cinema, how I'm always thinking about it, how often these films really intertwine themselves with my life. And this podcast is unabashedly, unapologetically personal, subjective. Um, I celebrate the personal and it's an unapologetically raw podcast. I talk about films as in in the way that they connect with my life and I infuse my own personal experiences into my commentary about films. That doesn't happen necessarily every single episode or with every single film, but for the most part it is a thread that is woven throughout the various episodes of this podcast. Today's episode is going to be about Ettore Scala's 1977 film, A Special Day. It stars Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastriani, and I'm going to dig really deeply into this film. It's about so many things, gender, sexuality, fascism, uh, human connection. I'm... I watched it, and um, I immediately had to talk about it. I had never heard of it till I watched it, um, and was just knocked out by it. So I have to talk about this film. I hadn't really planned on talking about it, but um, that is one of the beautiful things I think about watching films or about a, a cinema obsession or a cinema passion is that with each film you watch, you never really know where it's going to take you, or the avenues that you're going to go down. And um, you may have a plan for certain things that you're going to watch, and then you watch one film by a certain director, and you are um, amazed by their work, and you want to find out more. And so you just, you go down the rabbit hole, right? So this was just a film that I randomly decided to watch. And um, so... It's a really important film about fascist Italy and set during World War II or, well, shortly before World War II, actually. Um, 
so it's really really um, amazing but before I get to all that I actually want to talk about something that is connected to the film and I think makes the film even more relevant for our times and that is that we recently passed the one-year mark of the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States this podcast I started it in December 2016 and I actually started it sort of partly in response to what had happened in the election in November of 2016 as many of you know this was a traumatic incident for a lot of people who are not Republican who are not conservative who are not white straight men uh, you know it has been a whirlwind of a year it's been a traumatic year in general where we have seen the rule of law really being eroded we have seen scandal after scandal after scandal right now an investigation is being done about the Trump campaign's ties to Russia and how involved Russia was in our election and what they're doing also on social media through Facebook through Twitter to stoke political division and to try to um, to affect our election and our democracy really um, I will again recommend a film to you that was on my top favorites of last year for 2016 and it's called hypernormalization and it's a documentary by Adam Curtis and he talks a lot about how the world we live in came to be how these forces that are happening sort of in the ether you know in the places where we don't see for instance he talks a lot about Russia and he talks a lot about Putin's influence around the world and that Putin is really trying to completely destabilize people's idea of what truth is he's trying to attack truth and he has done that in Russia and he is obviously trying to do that here in the United States through social media and so it's it's like a three-hour documentary it's about Russia there's some there's all kinds of stuff in there about technology about capitalism about how certain segments of our country have become so powerful you know the finance industry and Wall Street and it's not a conspiracy theorist documentary it is a well thought out well researched look at how certain things in our country have happened or around the world how certain segments of the world have become so powerful and used their money to influence things and to influence politics and all of that very eye-opening but I just wanted to say a few words about the election about the past year in that I have felt myself in the past year incredibly destabilized by what happened and I will be honest that I feel more unsafe in my country I feel I I am a very liberal progressive I would call myself a socialist really living in a very conservative rural area of America and I would say that I do not feel safe to voice those things where I live I would not feel safe putting a bumper sticker on my car I would not feel safe putting a campaign sign in my window to let my neighbors know what I believe politically I'm just gonna be honest I feel very unsafe I feel like I would possibly be attacked verbally or physically and I have 
felt very distrustful of people in the past year. I have felt an aggression in the country. I have felt a tense, a tenseness, I don't even know, attention. That's the word I'm looking for. Attention in the country. Because we have this particular segment of the population that supports Trump and that is heavily influenced by right-wing media like Fox News and Breitbart. And basically they are being fed lies and conspiracy theories. And so they are virulent, they are vicious, and they are violent. We had Charlottesville a few months ago um, where Heather Heyer was killed. And I talked about that on one of the episodes there is the um, the surfacing of horrific elements of our society, of extremists, of white supremacists, of the KKK, of fascism, and it is out there. It is exposed. I think people used to voice these things in the privacy of their own homes because I think they kind of knew if they said those things publicly, if they said things about people of color or whatever they showed that racism and that sexism that they would be um sanctioned for it that there would be negative consequences for it and i think that the election of trump emboldened those people i think his election signaled to them that it was okay what they thought that it was okay to look at women and people of color and immigrants and to say that they are subhuman and to try to get rid of those elements, those people of our society. This is a group that is anti-diversity. They are anti-intellectual. They are anti-science, anti-woman. They are anti-everything. And they're dangerous. And um, they have become more emboldened. And you see it in the debates about the Confederate monuments, how here in the South there are still huge amounts of people holding on to these monuments of hatred that represent a time in our country when people were fighting to preserve slavery and the ownership of other people. And I think that says a lot, that if you look at a Confederate statue and that you don't see that as a glorification of racism and slavery, there is something wrong. And so this segment of the population, there is no debating them and there is no talking to them. Because they do not believe statistics and they do not believe facts. Because their whole idea of what is true and what is real has been completely shaped by these extreme websites and Fox News. You know, They have been so brainwashed and so convinced of things that are not true that to try to talk to them about something, it's almost impossible. So we have a profound political division in our country that I'm not sure how we can cope with or how we will overcome because it's not just two sides that disagree about a particular issue. You know, you can disagree about taxes. You can disagree about um, certain issues. You know, you can say, oh, well, I don't like the tax rate or, or whatever, you know, whatever you think. We can have a debate about it. We can say, well, how can we do taxes in a fair way or whatever? But when you literally have an opponent who does not agree that there are certain facts and there are certain realities, like on climate change, how are we supposed to handle climate change and what is happening with all these natural disasters 
the last few months have been devastating in Houston, in Florida, in Puerto Rico. How do you have a debate with someone that doesn't believe climate change is real, even though there is overwhelming evidence that climate change is real? So that's what we are facing as a country. And it's only getting worse with social media and the way social media is being manipulated to fuel those divisions and to fuel um, the spread of misinformation and lies. So it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year for immigrants. It's been, it's been a tough year for women, for the for our environment you know i mean everything so much progress that i think people thought we had made has not been made and the working class are struggling the poor are struggling capitalism is just killing us it's literally killing us it's killing our earth it's killing our bodies so many people don't have health care still 30 million people don't have health care this world we are living in is so wrong and so messed up and so unjust. It's hard. It's been a hard year and you just wonder if it had gone the other way. Where would we be right now? What would be happening? We have so many big issues that we're dealing with, whether it's climate change or the the terrifying rhetoric surrounding North Korea um, and nuclear weapons or natural disasters and violence and racial violence and you know sexual violence against women and just so much is going on and immigrants being treated like they're not even human beings anymore and it's just it's horrific in every way so this is the particular moment where we find ourselves and though it does not mirror world war ii and it does not mirror fascist italy um we are seeing a rising nationalism and this idea of patriotism that is so destructive and violent and um this this pressure to conform this pressure to buy into this type of nationalism you know it's very disturbing as well and and trump is exploiting that obviously you know but that's, I just wanted to say a few words about that. It's just, it's hard to believe it's been a year. So much has happened and scandal after scandal after scandal. There's some new thing every day and you're always destabilized and you're always unsure what's happening. You know, one day there's the Muslim ban. Another day he's trying to ban transgender people from the military. Another day birth control coverage is being taken from women. You know, it's just, it's constant. And I don't think it's anything that any of us have lived through in our modern lives, really, in our lifetimes. So I want to talk about this film, A Special Day, by Ettore Scola. He's an Italian director. This is an Italian film. And I want to speak for a moment about my love for Italian cinema, because I do believe that it is one of the great treasures of the world, what Italy has given us in terms of cinema. And I am a huge fan especially of older Italian cinema, of the Italian neorealists in particular. And even though I have not reviewed a film in, of the uh, neorealists, I certainly want to. And it is a big passion of mine, and I absolutely love these films. Roberto Rosalino, Rosalini, Vittorio De Sica, um, 
Fellini, of course, I've seen a great deal of Fellini, like La Strada and Knights of Cabiria and Eight and a Half. And um, I would love to talk about some Fellini at some point. I'd love to talk about De Sica. Um, Umberto D is one of my all-time favorite films. I'd love that film. I love Bicycle Thieves. I love Rome Open City and Journey to Italy and... I mean, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm just overwhelmed with love right now for Italian cinema. And um, what they did after World War II, the cinema that emerged, the neorealist, is, I think, one of the most important cinematic movements in history. And the way that they tried to look at the horror of World War II, the trauma of war, the destruction... And also, even beyond that, these stories that focus on everyday working people, struggling people. I just, as a working class person, as someone who has struggled with poverty, has struggled financially, who feels very downtrodden and and all of this, those themes resonate deeply with me. Films about the common person just trying to survive in a very difficult, dark world at times. Those are very important themes to me, like the Bicycle Thieves or Umberto D in in particular. And um, so if you have not explored Italian neorealism, I would urge you to do that. All the films that I mentioned are where you should start. And I would love to do an episode about some more Italian neorealist films. Um they're devastating at times and they're but they're so full of humanity and um and beauty in the way that they look at the complexities of the human condition and the experience of the common person and so i'm not as knowledgeable about modern italian cinema and i have not watched as many modern italian films i i tend to stick to the older stuff but i'm sure there's some good stuff being made in italy right now so i just wanted to take a moment to say that that i am a huge fan of italian cinema and i would urge you to explore it if you have not just right now i'm watching another italian film by de sica called um two women and um it's from 1961 and so far i'm really enjoying it and it has sophia loren in it and it's a really powerful film it's about a widow trying to protect her young daughter during world war ii so scholars scholars film um it's from 1977 called a special day The setting is Rome in 1938, and the reason it's a special day partly is because um, Hitler is visiting Rome on this day, and he's, um, he's visiting Mussolini, and so the Italian people are putting on festivities and they're putting on a parade for Hitler, and that is the backdrop of this film. And it was made in 1977, as I say, so it's made 30-some years after the end of World War II. And, of course, World War II was a traumatic event for Italy, for all of Europe, especially, you know, Germany, Italy, all of those countries, Poland. And um, I am very interested in World War II. I have a very intense interest in the Holocaust in particular, 
Um, I have talked about a few Holocaust films on the podcast, including Sophie's Choice and Phoenix by Christian Petzold. But World War II in general is a subject that interests me because it was such a massive historical event. It was so cataclysmic and it devastated so many parts of the world, Um, whether it's Japan with the dropping of the atomic bomb, which I talked about in my review of Alain René's Hiroshima Mon Amour, or it's... um, or it's Italy with a special day. Um, this is 1938, so this is a year really before we have the start of World War II, but we are obviously on the precipice of it, and that is the backdrop of the of the film, is this day that Hitler is visiting Rome and, and meeting Mussolini. And it stars Sophia Loren as a woman named Antonietta. She is a housewife, she has six children and a husband. They live in an apartment building, a massive apartment building with lots of apartments in it. They seem to be, I would say, working class for sure. She does not have nice clothes. And that's what's so interesting about this film is that Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastriani, they play um, against what you would expect from them. This is a very stripped-down film, and it's very stripped-down for Mastriani and and Loren. They, she doesn't wear a lot of makeup. He is certainly not his sort of promiscuous, like, uh, sexual um, thing that he has in some of, especially the Fellini films, like Eight and a Half or La Dolce Vita. I also love that film. I didn't mention that earlier. And um, these are much more subdued performances from them and much more, rather than being larger than life, they are much more true to life and much, these are small, quiet performances, I think, but they are gorgeous. And, And you see the talent of these two actors who have become such icons. I think when certain actors become these really big icons, you can forget that they are actually really great actors or actresses. You know, you get sort of blinded by the glamour and the beauty. And and, and performances like this, movies like this, sometimes allow them to show what they're really made of. And I think Lorraine and Mastriani do that, that they show you why they are such great actors. So Sophia Lorraine plays Antonietta. And Marcello Mastriani plays Gabriele. And um, I hope I'm saying that right. I'm trying to pronounce these Italian names properly. And I did my best to research them. So. And um, Mastriani plays a gay man, actually. Which is very against uh, type for him. And um, he's not, he doesn't play it in a really flamboyant way or anything like that, which can tend to happen sometimes when straight men play gay characters that can tend to overdo it or turn it into a caricature or stereotype. And Mastriani does not do that at all. This is a very subdued performance for him. 
And something really interesting about this film is the technical aspects of it. And one is the cinematography. There is this color to the film that is like a sepia color, which I think sort of immediately immerses you in the 1930s. Because when we look at old footage of things from that time, it tends to be black and white or it tends to have that sort of sepia um, look to it. And so perhaps that is why the cinematographer Pasqualino DeSantis chose that sepia color but it does make the film very unique it's not a color that you come across very often the only thing i could say that it reminds me of is alan j pecula's sophie's choice where in the flashback scenes when she's in auschwitz um there is this sepia tone to uh to the footage and that was made in the 1980s. So obviously DeSantis did it first with this film. And um, it, it it gives the, the film a very interesting look. And I think it, it certainly makes you feel like you're back in 1938. And I think it, um, I think it contributes more to that authentic feeling, I guess you could say. And the film also employs very long shots. Um, and often the shots are, are sort of exploring the apartment, especially where Loren lives. And, um, yeah, it's just these long, beautiful shots that go through her apartment and, and all of that. And, um, and that's a really fascinating aspect of the film as well as these slow, long shots. Because... This is a film unfolding on a historic day. Scola, he easily could have recreated certain events. He could have gotten someone to play Mussolini. He could have gotten someone to play Hitler. But instead, he chooses to use two things. And that is archival footage of the visit that happened in 1938 and radio broadcasts. The film is really saturated with this radio broadcast. It is always in the background because one of the tenants of the apartment building always has the radio on and it's just blasting this, what's happening. And so that's always in the background throughout the entire film. Um, so the political backdrop, the political event is always um, encroaching and it's always intervening into the lives of the characters even though it is more in the background in some ways but it's always present to some extent so on this day Loren well I guess I should I don't know I'm gonna use the actors names because it's just more natural for me than to say the characters names because I'm not sure if I'm saying them right and it makes me self-conscious. So I'm just going to just go with Loren and Mastriani. So this day is very important and Loren has six children. And on this day we see them in the morning and we see her waking her children up and getting everybody ready because they're going to go to the parade. So they're all getting dressed up and they're all excited about the parade for Hitler coming 
And it's very interesting to watch a film like this because it forces us to really look at a time period of the before. Because there is there is a before and an after with World War Two. You know, World War Two was so cataclysmic, as I said. And so here is a family that's excited about seeing Hitler. And for us in 2017, this is very disturbing. This is very unsettling that you, because we know what's to come. We know that Hitler is not some good guy. And he wasn't a good guy then either in 1938. But Italy was consumed by fascism at that time. And Mussolini was very powerful. And so, and of course, Germany and Italy were allies in the war. They were, you know, they supported each other and they were the Axis powers, um, I guess you would say. So, um, so this family is completely engaged in fascism and, and supporters of it. They, I don't know if Lorraine herself is particularly active in that support, but she goes along with it. It is part of her life. She has seen Mussolini. He looked at her once and she had a very intense reaction. She found him very attractive. And she talks about that at one time in the film. And she has this album of pictures of Mussolini and, and things about fascism. So this is her world. This is where she lives. She's a working class, you know, she's a housewife of a working class family. And this is just her setting. This is just her context and where she lives and what she knows and what she believes. Um, and she goes along with it and she seems to believe these things about fascism and to support them. And so she's getting everybody ready. And basically everyone in the apartment building is going to this parade, all the children, all the people. And she, and, and she's getting everybody ready. And the camera shows everybody streaming out of the apartment building. It's just tons and tons of people who are very excited about this historic event. And Lorraine is one of the only people left in the housing, in the building. And, um, it's her and it's a neighbor across the way that she can see. And that is Mastriani. And they don't really know each other that well. I don't think they've ever spoken or, or anything like that. And, um, she has this bird and it gets out of its cage and it flies over to Mastriani's apartment. And so that is what brings them into contact with each other. And it's this fascinating idea to me, you know, the whole, the whole apartment building is empty. Everybody's gone except for one of the tenants that's blaring the radio. And she hates Mastriani, by the way, she's very against him because he's actually an anti-fascist. He's very different and he's a homosexual and under fascism in Italy, homosexuality was seen as deviant and it was believed to be wrong and to be you know it was not an accepted thing for at all to be gay and so this bird flies over there and that's what brings them into contact with each other and you know you when you live in an apartment or you live somewhere anywhere really and 
but especially in this film when you see all the windows of the apartments and you think about all the lives of all these people and how you're so they're so separate in many ways and yet they're so interconnected as well and how many times do you actually get to go and walk into someone else's apartment how many times do you get to sit down and have a conversation with someone and connect and get to know them you know what I mean like that doesn't happen often and so I'm always compelled by films that are about that that are about two people who have never met and how something in life something in fate brings them together and then they don't know how they ever lived without each other and they don't and and the collision of their lives changes both of their lives forever. It makes me think of House of Sand and Fog, which I reviewed a while back. And I talked about that, how it's really the collision of these two lives. And that's what this film is about, too, is about these two people meeting. And what happens as a consequence of that, of this fateful encounter. And so... Loren goes over to his apartment and we see him in his apartment and he's got papers everywhere and he's got books. He actually used to be a radio announcer, but he lost his job, I think, because he was a homosexual or because he was anti-fascist. And I guess that came out and he lost his job and we see a gun on his desk. And so I think it's very clear that he is perhaps contemplating suicide to some extent. On this day and all of a sudden here is Sophia Loren's character and everything changes and so instead of him being alone in his apartment he has someone to talk to and both of them seem to be desperately yearning for some kind of contact with another person they seem both very desperate to sit down and talk to someone and have some kind of connection and you can see that in the way that they interact with each other. That, you know, at first, she goes over there, she gets the bird, she goes back to her apartment. And I think he goes back over there and they decide to have coffee and and different things like that. And um, so what could have been an interaction that lasted a few minutes, it starts to last much of the day, actually. Because they start to talk, they have some coffee, you know, and um, and they just talk about different things. You know, I don't necessarily want to go into all that because the film, in a lot of ways, there's no plot hardly. You know, it's just about these two people talking and, um, well, when she's at his apartment, he puts on some music and he's doing the rumba and he's dancing and... and you know, and then at her apartment, they have coffee and then, and so they're just talking, they're just being in each other's company, but they both seem like extremely lonely people and they both seem like they need that to some extent. And I think a lot of us need that. And I'm always interested in films about lonely people, about loneliness itself, about how, disconnected most of us feel in the world and these two and these two people in particular feel that way and I said earlier that this film is about a lot of things it's about gender sexuality politics and so I wanted to talk a little bit about each of those themes and how it pertains to the film gender 
in particular is with Sophia Loren and her character that she is a housewife first and foremost. She does not seem to have a life outside of her family and her children. And she is really taken advantage of and taken for granted. And she doesn't seem... She just... Her life is very limited is the sense that I got, you know. And she has holes in her stockings and tears in her stockings and she has a hole in her sock that she tries to hide from Mastriani and um her hair is sort of disheveled as I said this is Loren as very stripped down and raw and um she doesn't have a lot of money she doesn't seem to have any kind of friends or any kind of life outside her home and outside of her family and I think you can tell that that wears on her, that her life is so limited that there is not much beyond her life, you know, that it's just the kids and it's the husband who just wants to have sex and he wants to have another baby and, and, and things like that. And her world is so circumscribed, you know, to that one apartment, to that one place that she doesn't, she doesn't get to go out much. She doesn't get to have a more, I guess, fulfilling life, I guess you could say. And she's a woman and she's ignored by the family and they, they're, she's not really thought of, you know what I mean? She's just there to wake them up and feed them and clothe them and get them out the door. And, and then they go on with their lives and their days and they don't really think about her. And she felt to me like very forgotten and very invisible and, and didn't have a lot of options in her life or a lot of power over her life. That's the way she came off to me. And um, a lot of women have been treated that way throughout history, but particularly in the 1930s, I'm sure. And even now, women deal with being marginalized and silenced and, and invisible and and doing so much for their families and their children and their spouses. And then nobody does anything for them you know they can feel very forgotten and very taken for granted and so it's really about the sexism obviously um of italy in that time and the way that women were treated and the way that their lives were circumscribed by these gender roles <clears throat> another thing that this film is about is masculinity and that is something that's really interrogated through the character of through Mastriani's character. Um, he is gay, and um, she doesn't realize it. And that's a big part of this film too: is that she's interacting with him, and she doesn't realize that he's gay. And so she takes certain things that he does like maybe dancing with her or grabbing her or, you know, just different things that he does to be lighthearted and he doesn't mean anything romantic or sexual by it or just his desire to talk to her, you know, and have a connection to her. She interprets it as romantic and as him coming on to her. And of course that's not what he's doing. And, um, it's interesting because she has this album 
as I said, where she's where she's put pictures of Mussolini and she's put different quotes. I don't know where the quotes came from. I don't know if that I think there may be quotes that Mussolini said and she has that in the album and one of them can is about what is a real a real man. And a real man is supposed to be a father and a soldier and a husband. I think it's a husband, a father and a soldier or something like that. And um that is the that is what a real man is. And so we have this whole idea of in Italy under fascism what is expected of men and this hyper masculinity that we tend to see with fascism and with men who align with fascism even today here in the United States it's men who carry guns it's this very hyper masculine toxic uh it's it's toxic masculinity obviously and so how does a gay man navigate masculinity and this is not something I myself have, have explored or read, but I would be interested in the topic of how gay men look at masculinity. Because, especially in the West, it is defined in a way that objectifies women, that often sexualizes women, obviously, that is um, aligned with heterosexuality, um, and things like that and that is what we see as a real man is that ability to be violent to hurt other people to hurt women you know and I would think that a gay man and I'm just assuming this obviously does not fit into this idea of what masculinity is or what a man is and I would imagine that that is a difficult thing to navigate of how do you define yourself as a man right when you don't fit those characteristics of what is expected of a man and um and i think mastriani makes that visible to us that he does not fit these ideas of fascist masculinity in particular and he says that to her at one time he says i'm not a father a husband or a soldier and um and so obviously this film is showing how that masculinity is incredibly violent and destructive you know and that mastriani does not fit into that world you know and he's much more sensitive and much more tender and much more um also artistic and intellectual he has art in his apartment. He has lots of books. He's a very cultured man. He's very sophisticated and elegant as well in the way that he dresses. And, and um, he just overall came off like this very elegant, cultured, intelligent man to me. And, um, and I had never seen Mastriani as attractive. I mean... I've just never had that feeling about him. I've always been much more attracted to old Hollywood stars like maybe Paul Newman or Marlon Brando or something. And I never really got the sexual charisma of Marcello Mastriani. But this film, he's so stripped back. And it's like you see his face and you... And there was so much feeling in his eyes there was there's something about his eyes in this film 
where he has a great deal of emotion and he i was like oh my god he has a beautiful face like i finally saw that like he actually has this gorgeous face this gorgeous jawline and and i kind of got it a little bit like oh you know maybe that maybe there's that charisma i just had never really seen it before you know i can't quite explain it um so I think this film is incredibly ahead of its time for 1977 to be talking about masculinity, to be talking about gender, and to also be talking about sexuality in through Mastriani's homosexuality, that this is a gay man. And this is not a film where it's subtle. You know what I mean? Some films, they want to be sort of subtle about the gayness or the queerness, and it is not subtle. He is gay, and he tells her that he is gay because at one point she comes on to him and she wants to initiate um having sex with him and um they're out they're outside on the roof and she's getting the laundry and and so they're outside and it's this very dramatic moment because he knows that she supports these fascist ideas and obviously those are very conservative ideals right and yet she is willing to cheat on her husband while she would judge others, while she would judge somebody like him for being an anti-fascist. And so he is very aggressive towards her when he realizes that she wants to have sex with him because he sees her hypocrisy that here is this housewife who, you know, is espousing these very conservative ideas and then she's coming on to another man, you know. She is sitting in judgment of other people while she herself is engaging in behavior that would be seen as deviant, you know. And he tells her, it's not going to happen because I'm gay. And um, and it's a this very intense scene where he's talking about, you know, his homosexuality. So this film is incredibly upfront about it and confronts it head on and I think is critiquing fascism and is critiquing masculinity through it is saying look how destructive this idea of masculinity is and look how it oppresses men who do not men and women who do not fit these particular ideals of fascism or of gender you know it obviously oppresses women and it also persecutes gay men um, because they deviate from these norms of masculinity and, and how a gender, how particular, how particular genders should behave and how they should act, how men should act, how women should act. And it, and obviously he does not fit into that because he is a gay man and he knows that he does not belong there, that he is not wanted, that he is um at risk right he is at risk as a gay man in italy at this time he is absolutely at risk and his life is threatened because we know i mean i don't know the statistics for other countries with homosexual men but i do know that germany persecuted gay men in the holocaust and that several thousand or tens of thousands of of, of gay men were killed or were imprisoned and there are documentaries about it and there are um, memoirs about it 
Um, there's a really great film called Bent, B-E-N-T, that is about the persecution of gay, gay men. There's another one called... It's called Paragraph Something. Trying to look for it. Paragraph 175. I think that's what the documentary is called. Called because it was... Yeah. Paragraph 175. Gad, uh, Gad Beck uh, did a memoir. G-A-D Beck. Pierre Seal, Pierre S-E-E-L, he did a memoir about being a gay man in um, Germany. I've actually read a lot of stuff about it. Um, so there was a great deal of persecution. It was, it's been years though, so I have a terrible memory. But we do know that in Germany, there was a huge amount of persecution of gay men. I'm not sure the extent of it in Italy, but obviously... Mastriani's character is is scared and he feels at risk and he feels threatened. So um he definitely I think feels that fear to some extent for sure. So I've talked about these elements, the gender, the masculinity, the sexuality, and as I say for 1977, I would say that's pretty ahead of its time. Really looking at how destructive those things are, how destructive sexism and masculinity and homophobia is, not just how it was under fascist Italy, but also you can apply it to modern times as well of the oppression of women, the oppression of queer people, the LGBT um, community, what's happening to transgender people and trans women of color in particular so we see that with this rise of nationalism, this rise of an ultra-conservative right-wing fascist in many ways aspect of our own culture here in the United States with the election of Donald Trump, that we are seeing more persecution against women. We're seeing persecution of LGBTQ people and queer people. So... We are seeing that and the oppression of all kinds of people under this administration, whether it's immigrants, women, people of color, on and on I could go, you know. So this brings me to another aspect of this film that I want to talk about, and that's the political divisions that Mastriani and Loren come from very different political backgrounds. He is an anti-fascist. She is someone who, I don't know if she's deeply thought about fascism, but obviously her family believes in fascism, and so does she, and where she lives believes in it, and so she is part of it. And so what's interesting is that after the moment on the roof where he says he's gay and he gets very upset at her and she goes back to her apartment, he goes back to his, they come back together she goes back to his apartment 
and she apologizes and she wants to reconnect with him and so obviously up to that point she had felt a deep connection to him and she had enjoyed his company and she wants to continue spending time with him and so she returns to the to the apartment and they continue and he fixes her an omelet i think which i thought was really sweet and even though she believes these fascist ideas he is willing to i think see past that and i think maybe he sees in her obviously a kindred spirit and i think he sees in her a shared loneliness that they both have and perhaps a yearning that they both have for connection and so it got me thinking about the political divisions that are rife right now in the united states and and it made me think you know if these two people from very different spectrums of the political uh political you know world can connect can go i guess beyond the political to see the human then perhaps we can do that as a country you know what is the alternative we're very separated right now we're very divided and i don't want this to come off as i'm saying well we should forgive those white supremacists no no i'm not saying that and i get very frustrated with coverage that is very sympathetic towards trump voters i get very very frustrated with it i was frustrated with it right after the election and i tweeted about it as well but there was this idea that we needed to try to understand people who voted for a racist demagogue right you know i mean who oh it was just about the economy it had nothing to do with sexism or racism even though we know it did <laughs> and we do know it had to do with anti-immigrant sentiment and it had to do with racism it had to do with hating women right so i'm i'm in a conundrum myself in that we are so divided and I find myself wondering, how can we bridge the divide? How can we reach across the divide? How can we have some unity again? And the thing is, is that I don't think we can reach the more fascist-minded element of the Republican Party, obviously. I don't think there's any way to connect with people who believe Breitbart and who believe Fox News and who think that there are all kinds of conspiracies and that Sandy Hook was a hoax and that Las Vegas shooting about a month ago was a hoax. No, I, I don't know how we talk to the people who are obsessed with their guns and don't want normal common sense gun control. You know, I, I don't know if there's necessarily a way to reach those people. But I wonder if there is somebody, if there is a group of people who are maybe not that far gone. You know, they're not in the polo shirts and the tiki, tor tiki torches chanting KKK slogans. But maybe, you know, they're not that far gone, right? You know, is there any way we could reach them? And, and how do we do that? And what does that look like? How do we reach across difference how do we talk to our fellow americans and our fellow citizens and just have like a discussion as human beings one-on-one -on -one? 
Am I naive to believe that's even possible? Probably. <laughs> I mean, even as I say it, I sound ridiculous, right? But I just thought it was interesting that Loren is is believing these fascist things and Mastriani doesn't and he's against that and he's anti-fascist and yet the two of them are able to connect in a particular way that I think actually destabilized her political beliefs and I think it made her I do think it changed her and I do think it opened up her mind a bit that here she was meeting a gay man which under fascism is seen as deviant and wrong and here she is meeting an anti-fascist and here she is connecting with a man like that and seeing him as sensitive and seeing him as tender and you know she sees that and she feels a connection to him and she feels tenderness for him and I don't know how that couldn't possibly change her political beliefs it doesn't mean that she's gonna share that with her husband and children but perhaps there's a resistance that can go on inside of her you know that maybe she'll throw that album out with the Mussolini quotes I don't know but I felt at the end of the film that something had changed in her by meeting him. And so how can we facilitate those interactions and those discussions of peop with people who are afraid of difference and who are afraid of the other and perhaps show them that there is nothing to fear? That, you know, I don't know. And I'm not excusing people who believe those odious, disgusting things about transgender people and about people of color and about women but I also wonder how can we bring more people to our side how can we reach some people we can't reach the the terrible fascist KKK racist right we cannot reach them I mean maybe some of them will eventually change I don't know but how can we get those people that are not quite that far gone I wonder it all the time. I wonder how can we bridge those divides? How can we reach across the gulf that separates so many of us? And I don't have a question. I don't have an answer to that question. I really don't. But I think this film is so interesting to watch in light of modern America and what's happening with Trump and what's happening with the rise of fascism and nationalism here. And how two people set within that context and against that backdrop can connect to each other, you know, and can, um, can do that. And something about this film I found fascinating was this idea. I mean, when we think about World War II, we think, how could you not do something? How could you see the cattle cars and not? do anything how could you see Jewish people being put into as I say cattle cars and sent away or to see the pogroms against the Jews like Kristallnacht where they went and they destroyed the shops of Jewish people and there was it's called it means the night of broken glass you know there was glass all over the streets and we've all seen photos of the persecution of Jewish people where beards of some of the more orthodox Jews were cut and they were forced to, to um, 
wash the sidewalk and there was persecution of the gypsy people the roma and the senti there was persecution of the mentally challenged that was actually first in many ways there was the euthanasia program where tens of thousands of mentally handicapped people were put to death this is before the gas chambers this is before the einsatzgruppen or the mobile killing squads you know there was the internment of communists and political dissidents and you think how did all these people watch this happen how did people go to these parades for hitler and mussolini and and all of that um and this happened throughout europe you know and um how how could people attend these rallies how could people put up with this and not do anything but I think we've gotten a little bit of a taste of it here in our own country where we are seeing the KKK rise again and we are seeing um, these things and it's scary and you don't know what to do and you I'm not a hero okay like I, I would be terrified if I saw something violent happen in front of me and and everybody's like oh why didn't they stop it why didn't more people do something and it's like because often it's a lot bigger than you often it's not in your control i think a lot of us would never have thought someone like trump could come to power we would never think that this kind of rhetoric would become mainstream where you call mexican people rapists and you talk about grabbing women's genitals and you attack military families who have lost loved ones and you do all of these things on and on and on I could go with examples I don't think we ever thought that would go into the mainstream that you know this hatred for transgender people would become so rampant that these attacks against women and people of color would become so normalized I don't think any of us were prepared for that for what has happened in our country in the past year so history happens and it unfolds and people go on with their lives like here were two people in 1938 and hitler is in their backyard literally almost right and they're not doing anything about it you know the hitler's there it's just a normal day it's just a normal part of life to some extent you know they drink coffee and they eat an omelet and you know it's people's lives went on is what I'm trying to say is that these huge events were happening people were being carted off to gas chambers you know and I bet down the road there were farmers just doing their jobs and maybe they smelled the ash in the air I don't know but life went on people got married people had children you know these huge historic events took place and life went on life unfolded as it as it normally does and there wasn't this sense of urgency or there wasn't this sense of horror that I guess you would maybe expect to some extent and so this film reminded me of that that here is just these two ordinary people caught up in these historic events but also in some ways separate from it the only thing that is sort of there to remind you is the radio that is constantly in the background always impinging on the present you know always impinging on the moment so we're always aware of the context of this film that 
here is Hitler and Mussolini meeting, you know, here is fascism rising in Europe, here is what, what represents an alarm bell for what's about to come in a few years, and by the end of it, tens of millions of people will be dead, and the world will never be the same, but none of that's happened yet, because it's 1938. We see the warning signs. We see what's coming. We get a sense of that threat, that sense of menace, that sinister thing in the air. But they don't know what's to come in 1938, you know. They don't know. So. Now, at the end of the film, there's an interesting moment. And it is when Loren and Mastriani have sex with each other. And I was shocked by this, I must be honest, because Mastriani is gay. And, um, but it does happen. And it's actually a really beautiful scene. It, and I, I think some people would probably say this is not likely. You know, this is not a likely thing to happen that a gay man would have sex with a straight woman. Um, I was surprised by it, as I say. I don't know if it's authentic. You know, I don't know if that would really happen in real life. Um, I'm not totally sure why it was included in the film. I don't think the film necessarily needed it. I think there were maybe other things that could have happened, like maybe they could have just laid and held each other, you know. That's something that I think could have been sort of tender and moving. I'm not sure why it had to go there with them having sex. But I will say this. It felt to me like, um, like I say, it felt like a moment of tenderness. And it did feel to me like an attempt to connect. And Lorenz's character in particular just feels starved for affection. You know, she just seems to crave touch to me and crave contact with another body and another skin and that was something that came through for me about Loren's character and I don't know if other people caught that quite as much but for me it was quite apparent and she and she finds Mastriani attractive she is attracted to him and she sort of initiates it and she starts to kiss him and to kiss his face and um one moment Sorry about that. And so for me, the sex scene, while I don't know if it's it's something that would really happen or I don't know if it was necessary to the narrative, I did see it as a moment of tenderness and of two people trying to connect to each other. And perhaps I also saw it as an offering that maybe Mastriani could sense her need for that kind of contact, could sense that she was yearning for that, and perhaps he wanted to give that to her. And afterwards he says, 
even though he's gay, he said that it was nice. So I felt like, again, maybe this was an offering to her, you know, as maybe he knows that she's never going to really, you know, have this with someone else, that this is maybe her only opportunity to experience this with someone outside of her husband. And so I felt like maybe he, that's why he did it or went along with it. I'm not going to deny that it's a strange scene and that it, I really didn't expect it. And so, but I will say there was a tenderness about the scene that I thought was moving to some extent, the two of them and the, their bodies, um, coming together and they're and just trying to connect again I think it could have worked better if maybe they just held each other you know or something like that but they wanted to take it a step further obviously and so after that you know it the day pretty much has come to an end People are starting to return back home from the parade. And so Loren knows that she needs to get back to her apartment and back to her family who is going to be returning very soon. And, um, and so she goes back to her apartment. She goes back to her life and there's definitely a sadness about it. You know, they, they come in, they eat dinner you know, they're just talking about the day and it's kind of like she's not even there. I think her husband wants to have sex or something that night. And so, again, she is just sort of reduced to this, you know, she's just there for her husband to have sex with her or to take care of the kids. She's not seen as like this, like an actual person. She's not treated like an actual person in many ways. And so there's just something really sad about her that she goes back to her life and I felt like she had really been impacted and changed by her, her interaction with Mastriani. And I did feel that some of her political beliefs had been a bit destabilized and I felt like her world had maybe been opened a little bit by spending time with him and feeling very connected to another person and, I think human connection can be incredibly powerful. And I don't just mean sexual connection or romantic connection, which is what's partly kind of beautiful about this film, that up until the moment they have sex, their connection seems to be much more about friendship. And it seems to me to almost transcend the romantic or the sexual. Because especially here in the U.S. and in Western culture in general, we really centralize romantic love and we do not make space for other kinds of love and other kinds of connection. We don't value friendship enough, I think, or non-platonic love or is it platonic? Yeah. I've never understood that word very well, but non-romantic love. And um, we always have to sexualize it. You know, there, we always have to sexualize things for some reason. And I think there's something really beautiful about connecting to somebody, whether they are male or female, or whether they're the, the same gender of you or, or another gender from you. I think there's something really beautiful about just connecting to somebody, 
you know, and it not being sexual and it's not being romantic and, and you, we just tend to believe that the only really deep relationship you can have is through romance or sex. And I think that there is an argument to be made that you can have really deep, lasting, beautiful connections with people that have nothing to do with sex and nothing to do with romance. And um, I wish we made space for that more often. And I wish we valued that. And so I felt like this film, for the most part, until the sex scene, which even then, even though they have sex, it's almost like two friends having sex. You know what I mean? It it wasn't exactly passionate. You know, it was it was more of like I said, more of like an offering or a gift or just trying to connect in some way. And so I felt like this film showed that you could connect to somebody outside of it being about sex or desire or romance that the, that it, you could have a friendship with someone or you could have a really deep conversation with somebody and that matters too you know and that can change your life that can be a revelation any kind of human connection can be so crucial in our lives and I think a lot of us are just sort of starved for it we're starved for that connection to another person I know I personally am you know I'm a really isolated person where I live it's hard to meet people who share my political beliefs or who share my passion for cinema or share my passion for literature and I've always been lonely I've always felt disconnected from other people separate from other people I talk a lot about this in my episode on Carnival of Souls. You know, I just always felt so alone and so such an outsider, always on the outside looking in, you know, looking at other people have really great friendships and really great lives. And I don't have that, you know, and it hurts. It really hurts at times. And I've just never really connected to anybody. I mean, I hate to say that, but I don't have like a best friend. I have my mom, she's my best friend, and so my mom is the deepest connection that I've ever had besides my father, um, who is now um, deceased, and um, those those were the deepest connections I ever had, because it's based on love and unconditional love, and I think that's what you have to have from somebody is unconditional love, that no matter how terrible you might be sometimes, or because we all have our moments, I certainly have mine, that they will love you no matter what. And I think that's what's really hard to find. Is someone who will love you through the good and the bad. And through you being angry. And you being bitter. And you being depressed. And you struggling. And I thought that was really amazing. How they forgave each other. After that really difficult moment. Where he tells her he's gay. And he sort of is verbally, you know, sort of cruel towards her, you know, some of the things that he says. and, um, But, of course, she was being very hypocritical, you know, that she was trying to initiate an affair. And here she is, this conservative housewife who probably judges other people and what they do. And so they both saw the bad in each other, right? They both saw, like... They both had this moment where they both didn't look too great. And they both didn't act too great. But then they were able to forgive each other and to come back together. And so I think there's something really powerful about being 
at your worst in front of someone, like at your worst, <laughs> like you would not want anyone to see you like that. And then that person still accept you. That person still love you. It's not something that happens often, you know, where you really feel like you can be your whole self, that you can be everything you are, you know. And I think they sort of found that in each other. But for one day, and then it's over. And she goes back to her life, and he goes back to his... Two men appear in his apartment, and he packs his suitcase, and they leave. And you have the sense that he's leaving forever. When I read online how other people interpreted the ending, they said that he was being taken away by the authorities. I personally did not get that sense when I was watching it. I felt like he was escaping because he asks two of the men about when is the boat leaving. And I could be completely wrong. And if you have a different interpretation or if you know any different, let me know. But um, they don't say, you know, we're taking you to jail. They're not in cop uniforms. They're just in trench coats and hats and he's in the same exact outfit and they let him pack. He's packing a suitcase and then he grabs um, this painting as well. And he just asks, when is the boat leaving or something like that? So I did not interpret it as the authorities coming to arrest him. I'm not saying that that's not what happened. That could have been two police officers taking him away to jail. I took it as he was trying to get away, that the boat may have been his escape, that he was going to get on a boat and leave Italy and try to escape Italy so that he is not arrested or persecuted. So I don't know which it is, personally. I do not know. Because I read online one thing, but then with when I was watching, I interpreted it a different way. But either way, he leaves the apartment. I don't, I'm not even sure if it was his apartment, if he was staying at a friend's apartment. I'm not quite sure about all that. But, um, but he leaves. And so there is this sense that these two people will probably never see each other again. And yet they shared this intensely personal day with each other. And they had this very deep connection to one another on that day. And yet they will never probably see each other again. And um, that was really heartbreaking. But she has the book that he gave her. He gave her a book, I think, The Three Musketeers. And so she reads some of the book. She reads a few pages and... I think that'll maybe be one of her few connections to him. One of the few things she has to connect her to him. So I thought this was just a really beautiful film from the look of it with the sepia cinematography that really immerses you in 1938 Italy um, to the really progressive themes of the film, which is about the oppression of women's lives, you know, of, of gender, it's interrogation of toxic masculinity, it's look at the at sexuality and the persecution of homosexual men, it's look at the devastating toll of conformity and what it means when you don't conform 
he especially does not conform. You know, he cannot conform himself to those ideas of masculinity and of what a man should be and, and all of that. And he cannot conform to these very conservative, hateful laws, you know, that basically say that he should not exist, you know. And obviously shows the destruction and the destructive side of, uh, or the destructive essence, really, of fascism. How it completely flattens people's lives. And um, limits diversity, limits difference. And um, forces people to conform, you know, and really, I think, strangles people's lives you know fascism fascism is obviously a terrible terrible thing and the fact that it is rising again in in its unique form here in the united states is really scary and all we can do is hope that we can vote in these elections and try to get some of these people out of office get more progressive candidates in office hope for hope that the rule of law wins out you know we have seen the rule of law work at times, you know, and keep resisting and keep fighting back in whatever ways that we are able to as individuals and create um, solidarity, create movements like socialism or support, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter and socialism and you know, that are um, really fighting against fascism, fighting against this really scary um, conservatism and white supremacy that is on the rise here in the United States. And um, But at the end of the day, for me, this film is about human connection and two people trying to make some kind of contact with another person in the world Two people who are profoundly lonely, profoundly alone, profoundly oppressed in different ways. Her as a woman, him as a gay man. And them coming together and finding comfort, solace, beauty in one another. And I think that can be a, a really amazing thing. And I thought that was probably the most moving aspect of the, of the film. That against this backdrop of Hitler and Mussolini and fascism and World War II... Here are two people um, finding some kind of connection with one another. And I think that experience will probably last them the rest of their lives. This is definitely just an astounding film. Loren and Mastriani give such raw, beautiful, heartfelt, tender performances. I was so impressed with the work that they did. I had not seen them in these kinds of roles before and they absolutely showed how talented and uh, brilliant they really are so i love this film i had to do an episode about it i hope i did it some justice if you're able to see it i definitely recommend that you see it it's really beautiful so i'll stop here thanks so much for listening until next time keep watching great films